This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 17, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. It's not just telephony metadata. The NSA has been collecting Internet metadata. Far more sensitive information has been collected more broadly than previously thought. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, comments. So the Washington Post uh, reported Saturday... Uh, confirming, I think, what everyone suspected, which is that the NSA has not just been gathering telephone call metadata, but also, at least for several years, uh, immediately after 9-11, even without court orders, gathered vast amounts of Internet metadata as well. We now know that uh, it was this and not actually the phone call database that nearly prompted the resignation of uh, Acting Attorney General James Comey, FBI Director Robert Mueller, and basically a top tier of Justice Department lawyers. And we know it was now internet metadata that uh, they found so controversial uh, and that after the end of that warrantless program, um, they continued to get under authorities issued directly by the secret FISA court. Uh, Now, why, you might wonder, would internet metadata provoke so much more controversy than phone metadata? And I think if you think about the way we use the internet, it becomes clear that as sensitive as a record of phone calls is, it can reveal things like who's called a suicide hotline or a a, a substance abuse counselor. The internet is something we use, I think, a lot more frequently throughout the day, not just to make calls, but to read things, to engage in political discussions with lots of other people. And it's also something where, uh, as the government itself acknowledges, the boundary between foreign and domestic is a lot harder to judge accurately. You've got a, an account on a Google server. Uh, maybe it's been accessed from overseas, but it's hard to know exactly whose that is, whether that's a U.S. person on vacation uh, or something that's gone through a, a relay in, of some kind. Um, so geography is harder to determine with internet metadata. And it also is, uh, in a way, a lot more dangerous from a First Amendment perspective. When you think about getting a list, in essence, of every book and magazine you're reading. What websites do you read all day? What, uh, you know, political, religious, sexual websites does a person find interesting? Also, we've learned about the practice of contact chaining, where starting with a particular suspect, uh, NSA analysts will branch out and look at all the people they're in communication with. And that, in the context of a phone log, can get you pretty quickly to a large number of people. But when you think about the number of people you communicate with on the internet, and in particular, the potential for very large scale communication, um, you very quickly get to a very large number. So imagine, uh, as I'm a number of a a member of a number of political mailing lists that you might be on a discussion group that once you go two hops from that mailing list, you've got every other member of that group. Now, in a case called NWCP v. Alabama, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, political group membership lists, especially if they are controversial groups, as the NWCP was in Alabama in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, is something the government can't seize without uh, an overriding and compelling interest because of the way it burdens expressive association. That internet metadata also is a way to re-identify people who have engaged in anonymous online speech, someone who might be a government employee who has an anonymous blog that criticizes uh, the government, or just some public figure who has uh, controversial views that they want to express anonymously. The Supreme Court has held that part of the right to free speech is a right to speak anonymously. And so internet metadata also implicates that. It's just a far more comprehensive and detailed and revealing 
kind of map of your brain almost. It is almost like reading someone's diary, which is kind of, I think, the paradigmatic sort of offensive Fourth Amendment search. Um, we know a little bit more about how the FISA court was brought into signing off on this practice. Uh, FBI head Robert Mueller in testimony last week uh, suggested that the FISA court had now shifted to determining not that particular sets of records were relevant, but that an entire database was relevant under uh, FISA authorities because it would contain relevant records. And it's important to understand, I think, that even apart from any particular program and the sensitivity of any particular kind of data, this shift that the court is apparently engaged in, um, that is in terms of judging what is the particular thing they're granting access to, moving from specific records and let's say specific phone numbers, specific email accounts, and saying, no, we're going to evaluate relevance or the appropriateness of a, a search in terms of an entire database is, is a really disturbing secret change in the court's legal logic that uh, really does away with this sort of core idea of particularity. It's as though you had a, a warrant specifying a place to be searched, but the place to be searched is Earth or New York City. Um, it, it's the kind of paradigm of a general warrant, the exact thing the Fourth Amendment was meant to prevent. Is this part and parcel of just having secret courts? I think this shows why secret courts are so dangerous, apart from their ability to do things shielded from democratic accountability in a way courts aren't supposed to be directly democratically accountable. But, you know, it's easy to think that federal judges are reliable, are, are uh, you know, people we expect to make the right decision just because they're personally incredibly wise. But that's not the case. They have a different kind of accountability. They're embedded in a community of legal thought where they feel like they need to make uh, decisions that are justifiable when they're published, that the legal community, higher courts, scholars, and peers will regard as not just a, a kind of transparent attempt to reach a predetermined conclusion, but as a, a reasonable interpretation of the law. And you take away that publicity, especially when it's not an adversarial court, when there's not two sides arguing, but just the government uh, presenting its position and the court signing off on it or not, and you essentially remove the entire community context in that, that gives us reason to have confidence in the decisions judges make and in their ability to act as a meaningful check on government. This is a court that has, over the span of its existence, um, denied at most a couple dozen FISA requests out of thousands. Last year, it denied no FISA orders for wiretapping. So, I think it's clear that secrecy has essentially removed the ability of this court to meaningfully check government. It's become uh, just a, a kind of fig leaf, a, a, a justifying ritual. So as lawmakers now begin to consider what changes ought to be made to FISA, to NSA surveillance, to oversight, to that, I know FISA, ha or the, uh, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has resisted greatly declassifying even generalized versions of their own opinions. I think it is incredibly telling when there is resistance to disclosure, even at this most abstract level. I mean, it reminds me of how under the original Bush warrantless wiretap program, even the NSA lawyers were not really allowed to see the, either the legal justification or the actual terms of the authorization. Uh, it's something that really bespeaks to me a lack of confidence in the underlying reasoning there. It says to me, 
that maybe they are making decisions that they would be embarrassed to have other legal thinkers evaluate publicly. So what changes should should come soon? It's probably not possible to get rid entirely of a secret court here. I think that in some sense, a secret court is, is kind of inherently in tension with the basic idea of law as a public thing. But at the very least, we need, as some legislators have proposed already, uh, declassification of major interpretations of the law, a lot more transparency about general aggregate uh, statistics of the, how many orders are issued, how many people are involved, how many Americans get sucked into the, data, the database, at least approximately, if they can't say precisely. Um, you know, a lot of things have to remain secret, but a lot of things don't. And we need to allow as much as is feasible to be public instead of just deferring to claims of security need, because we can see how inherently undemocratic and dangerous secrecy can be. And I think we've already seen the pernicious effect it has on the courts and on legislators, frankly, who are captured by the intelligence agencies after years of being uh, let in on the secret and now feeling, I think, complicit in it and obligated to defend it. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.